right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. Yeah, we are hurtling towards the end of our second season. I know. It's it's approaching. It's quickly approaching. I, I was thinking about that, like how much content we've put out into the world through this. Not all of it's been like quality content, but it's been oh, out there. No, come on. <laughs> 100%. All good. Yeah, we're rocking it. What can yeah. we say? Hey, that's Scott and I'm Ollie. Yep. And that's Ollie and I'm Scott. All right. And, and the, hey, you wait, want to say this is this is science in between. Did I've you already said that. that. Did you say that? that? I, did. I missed that. Okay. Yeah. This and is science. It's it. still it's still it is what it is, though. I but I think that you know what when we when we conjured up the, the this idea of the show and we conjured up this in between, you know we we left something out. We thought about the in between, but we were thinking about it in between from like digital versus face to face. But there's an in between we missed, and we I did. think that and that's the topic of today's show. And that I, is. you you want to set this up a little bit? Sure. So this is this is the result of a conversation that I had with friend of the show, Michelle Kroll, who's the director of the Discovery Space, which is a, um, a science museum here in State College. Um, and it's awesome. And, and it has been Michelle's baby for quite a while. And she's she's done an amazing job there and moved it from a little space to a bigger space and really trying to turn it into a legitimate science center in a, in a little town like state college. Um, and I was meeting with her yesterday because I have the privilege of serving on the board for that, for the discovery space. Oh, look and, at you. That's cool. Know, right. Okay. Fancy. I'm so yeah, fancy. You are famous. <laughs> I, I didn't say famous. I said, I, fancy. Said famous. I said, famous. I'm a fancy duchess. I get to serve <laughs> on a board. Um, so uh Michelle and I were meeting to talk yesterday and and she mentioned that she um listens to the show or has listened to the show and said how come you've never talked about informal science education? I was like that is a good question. I do not have an answer no. for and so she said you should. So here we are. Yeah, a few, few days later we're talking absolutely. about informal science ed. So so Ali when you think of informal science education what do you think of? Yeah. So I think of, you know, museums, I think of after school uh, activities, I think of community projects, I think of maker spaces. Um, I think of like online sorts of things where you can like, you know, communities online that are teaching science or talking about science or, you know, and there's lots of opportunities for that. Um, I've engaged with that kind of stuff as a parent. And sure. as, you know, as somebody's out there, like, you know, I, we talked about in the last episode how we were doing some traveling and um, we didn't go to a science center per se, but we engaged with that kind of stuff at the museums and things we, we, we went to like yeah. one, one place um, was a music, um, a music museum that my son wanted to go to in, in Stockholm. And they had this really cool interactive thing with blocks that you could, you know, and he's 16. So this is not, I don't know if he's the target population for this or not, but um, between he and I, they had two of these interactive tables with these blocks. We probably spent a half an hour like learning rhythm and learning, you know, how to mix music because the blocks, these are the blocks had like four or five different sides. Um, and then you could, the way you oriented them on the table changed what instrument was playing and mm-hmm. where you place them location, like up and down, left and right on the table, changed volume, changed rhythm, changed, and you spun it and it changed like the tempo. Like it was like wild. It was That's wild. Cool. So while it wasn't 
directly science. I mean, I think it's science adjacent, right? I mean, because yeah. all of that stuff spills into um, to, to science. And I think that's the kind of stuff that when we're talking about informal science education, we're talking about having people get excited about learning science and, and having some sort of autonomy and agency, right? Coming back mm-hmm. to, the, you know, that and being able to learn in in ways that are not like a formal classroom setting where things are planned, you know, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely some planning going on. I don't mean that like, like, no, no, yeah, informal I think that's does not mean like accidental. It, it doesn't mean like, Oh, Hey, it's happenstance. There right. are like some really smart, dedicated people who are like, you know, planning this stuff out. And so I don't think that informal means accidental or happenstance or anything like that. No, I mean, there's tremendous amounts of time and energy that go into the design of a lot of these informal learning spaces. But like you say, I mean, one of the challenges of even talking about informal science education is that it does cover so much territory. Like it really can be a lot of different things, you know, like um, my daughter on her way home um, from, uh, you know, sort of Western New York stopped last night because the because the meteor shower was at its peak last night and tonight. Um, unfortunately, there's a full moon, so that sort of wrecks it. But she stopped at Cherry Creek State Park, which is like a dark sky park here in Pennsylvania, to see if she could catch some of that. But there, they have all sorts of programming there at that because it's a dark sky um, park. So they have a big event once a year where a- amateur astronomers come and other people can come and wander around and talk to them. And they have events during that that are are related to that. So there's things like that. There's more formal physical spaces like, you know, in State College, the Discovery Space and the Rivet, which is a makerspace attached to it. You mentioned makerspaces. Then there's big ones like the, you know, the Exploratorium in San Francisco or the, you know, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Some of these like famous places. Um, And but, you know, and, and the degree to which they care and I, I maybe I use air quotes around this, but care about whether they are science learning environments or whether they're sort of, I don't know, edutainment environments or just right. context in which kids explore stuff. And, um, you know, certainly one of the defining characteristics of, of informal science learning environments is they aren't beholden to some specific content goal or maybe even, and this is a question that I think we can think about a little bit, is even a practice goal. Like like being in a makerspace, we could talk about whether those whether you're engaged in scientific practices there or not. But is the goal science practices or science and engineering practices? We if we spread, you know, if we were clear about that in the NGSS, then then makerspaces more cleanly fit within that realm, I think. But I think that, you know, from all different perspectives, like when, when people are designing these places, how do they think about the outcomes right. of it? And what does that look like? And how is that different than a classroom space? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, as somebody who engages with this loosely as a scholar, I mean, I've, I've attended some sessions at uh, ARA and way back at ICLS, you know, years ago. Um, and I've, you know, gone to these as as a parent, um, you know, I, I would put a lot of things in the box, right? I would put, you know, makerspaces absolutely in the box, um, even though like, because I look at that engineering component, right? And if we l- liken it or connect it to the next generation science standards, I mean, there's those engineering practices that are in there, you know? And so, um, yeah. I don't know. 
Well, I mean, I guess that's the question. Maybe let's start with makerspaces because that that is a an interesting sort of I don't know. It it has in science education over the last ten years gotten a lot of attention. Buzz. Yeah, a lot of buzz. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of schools, a lot of universities, um, a lot of museums built makerspaces, right? right. They built, built and even what does a makerspace mean, right? So some of them look, I don't know, like an art space almost yeah. like it can art you know, there's construction paper and glue and tape and and other sort of materials for for making uh, what normally you would think of as art stuff and then others <clears throat> have 3d printers and welders and, and all this drills other... and all kinds of tools and you know so it's it's really you know it becomes because it's, i think makerspaces is you know Ill, not, I don't want to say ill-defined. It's just so loosely yeah. defined that um, that almost anything can count like as a makerspace because what what the makerspaces are designed to do is to offer space or environments for people to come and be creative and build things and develop things and and make and that what they make is really a personal choice. Some of folks are making art or somebody's making. You know, a, I don't know, you know, taking an Ikea thing and mixing it up and, you know, right. hacking it to do something different. I mean, there's, you know, or some of them are doing something that's like pretty, you know, programmatic, like, hey, we're going to do this. And it's almost like if you were to go to Home Depot on a Saturday morning, you're going to make a, you know, a, a mm -hmm. bookend or something, yeah. you know, Adirondack um, chair. Right. An Adirondack chair by following like almost like what we would call like a cookbook kind of lab in mm -hmm. a science classroom. They're following that. But again, I, I mean, not necessarily it's that would be a, I'm not talking knocking that because, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen like a like a 15 year old try to use a tool for the first time. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have, <laughs> you know, because we, we would do stuff in my physics class where kids would have to use, you know, hammers and screwdrivers. And it would be like, no, that's not how you that's not how you use that tool. <laughs> Because, you know, there maybe some folks aren't getting that experience at home. Yeah. And so that is the thing. I think that's the critical thing about all of this is offering opportunities for kids and, and adults to learn science, learn, you know, how to make things because they may not be doing it in their home yeah. and they may not be doing it in their school either. Right. And so the informal, you know, informal spaces offer opportunities for that to happen. And that is something we should celebrate. Right. Yeah, for sure. But I, but I also think that the challenges are, are really um, quite different. And also for me, just like one of the things I think we talk about a lot in, in like ambitious forms of science instruction is it's actually very planful. It requires a lot of hard work to think through, like how do, you know, what's this phenomenon? How do I break this down into parts? How do I talk to kids about it? How do I think through, you have to think through a lot of pieces. It's intensive. Um, and I think museums or informal learning environments let's now we'll switch to museums maybe for the point i'm trying to make is they have to do that they have to be incredibly planful and thoughtful but they also have to recognize that basically what they're planning for is somebody walking by this thing and looking over and right. so they have to draw someone in yeah. they have to figure out how to engage them in something and then also think about as part of that how am i going to help them learn something or, or maybe not, maybe, maybe it's just like, Oh, we want them to have fun, but usually there's a, there's a learning goal. And so thinking about like, how do you design a space that 
pull somebody in and then and then they may spend one minute there or 45 minutes there you don't you have no control over that either so it's just like well here i hope i hope this is the kind of thing that people really love and are going to care about and some of those exhibits will be much more likely to keep engagement and others are designed not to be they're designed to you're only supposed to go by for a minute and look at something or you know turn some cranks or whatever to look at something and then some are meant to really you know be intensive like one of the exhibits at the discovery space is this sort of um forecaster so mock forecasting space and it's got green screen and kids can you know there's video behind and a teleprompter and all this stuff and uh, clearly that's not meant for somebody to just walk through like you're supposed to spend some time doing something there for a little while so um like how how um folks in museums think about all that complexity um and then makerspaces on some level seem like the exact opposite because they're just like, here's a bunch of stuff, do what you want. And we sometimes teach courses in there or whatever, but it's like, oh, there's little bits over here and there's soldering equipment over there. You can make jewelry. Oh, there's some pottery wheels. There's sewing machines. There's, but there's also, you know, an arc welder and a drill press and a, you know, it's like, wow. And then to think of that about how do you think about that as a learning environment and and you as an environment designer, how do you think about that space? It feels really challenging to me. Well, so let me, let me, rather than us just like talk an opinion, let's draw on some yeah. stuff that, um, so when you proposed this, I was like, oh, I got to catch up. I did a little bit of research. And so um, one of the things I found was in um, a national research council you know, yep. article from like 2009, who was co-chaired by Phil Bell called Learning Science in Informal Environments, People, uh, Places, People, and Pursuits. Okay, mm -hmm. and we can link to this in the show. And in this, they proposed, now this is from 2009, so I don't know how current this is, but I think it's a good way of framing maybe this conversation a little bit better than, you know, what goes in the box and what doesn't go in the box. Because the, he, he, they, the, the folks who were on this committee to, to talk about this informal science, uh, proposed six strands that would help to better define or describe the learning in informal environments, okay? Mm -hmm. So the first strand is uh, experience excitement, interest, and motivation to learn about phenomena in the natural and physical world. Okay, so that's strand mm -hmm. one. Strand two, come to generate, understand, remember, and use concepts, explanations, arguments, models, and facts related to science. So that's strand two. Mm -hmm. Strand three, manipulate, test, explore, predict, question, observe, and make sense of the natural and physical world. Strand four, reflect on science as a way of knowing on processes, concepts, and institutions of science and on their own process of learning about phenomena. Uh, strand five, participate in science, scientific activities and learning practices with others using scientific language and tools. And strand six, think about themselves as science learners and develop an identity as someone who knows about, uses, and sometimes contributes to science. So those mm -hmm. are the six. Yeah. And it, I mean, so when you hear those, I mean, that was a lot. We probably have to go back and, uh, and, and. And we'll drop them in the show notes. So the folks are like, if you didn't write all those down, you know. Yeah. I'm but sure I mean, they love to hear me read. They, they, they have, I mean, that's what I tune in for. <laughs> yes. like, like, I really hope, like, I really hope up, Ollie will read up, something. Wake up. Wake yeah. up. <laughs> Maybe he'll read the dictionary this time. I just love yeah. the sound of his voice. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, when you listen to that list, though, it doesn't sound that different from what we want from our formal learning environment. Sure. Right. 
So I guess that's one of the questions too, is like, what, what, um, yeah, what are we, what are we, how would we differentiate those things? Right. Are there, are there substantive differences between, because, you know, for me, it feel like a, a makerspace feels a lot different than a science classroom. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and both. And I, and I say that not as a, a bad thing, just as it should be like, you know, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the same. You would expect them to be different. Um, but I also think like I struggle with the idea that, um, well, obviously, I don't think they're saying that all informal. I know they're not saying that those six strands are all need well, to be present for it to be very right informal science learning. No, this is I'm 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 certain this is not like the litmus test. Oh, you right. you didn't meet strand number five. Oh, sorry, right. yeah, you're voted off the island. You know, nothing like that. But I do wonder, you know, like what's the role of the informal learning environment in in the science education ecosystem. And it seems like one of its big roles, both implicitly and explicitly is to generate excitement or engagement or whatever word. I don't love engagement. Um, but to, to get kids interested in science and know that science is a thing and that they can be scientists. I mean, that goes to the last one about them. Their science identities, but I think, you know, this idea that it's an environment that, I think one of its strengths is that it doesn't have specific outcomes. And so there isn't a sense going back to our sort of deficit asset way of thinking about kids is there isn't a sense that you're going to do it wrong or that you're going to, you're going to be bad. Right. So this informal science learning environments does give kids an opportunity to engage with science ideas and science practices in ways that there isn't an out because there isn't a specific outcome that gets examined at least within the, from the experience of the person doing it um it it can be freeing and and not feel like i'm being told i'm bad at this or i'm wrong um so i think that that's a powerful thing about um informal learning environments is is they they can be a place where kids can experience scientific thinking and acting in ways that they don't feel like well when i do it this way i'm doing it wrong right well i think the other part is that gives them you know, opportunities to, you know, really, you know, coming back to that strand six to try on those identities that may not be able to develop in schools, right? I think about our our local school district has um, a really big middle school program um, and a really big high school program around promoting women in science, female students in science. One is around like coding at the middle school, like helping, you know, middle school girls see themselves as, you know, potential coders, right? And be, you know, computer scientists. And then the other one at the high school is around, you know, STEM more broadly. Um, Those are things that may not be, you know, as supported. I mean, mean not intentionally, Mm -hmm. but, you know, not intentionally um, supported or, you know, in in a typical classroom. So these are folks who can see themselves as, you know, scientists, as, you know, programmers, you know, and that right. help them and help them develop that. And I think that's cool. You know, um, it is. But I think one of the challenges about these places is uh, in terms of equity, right, is that oh, yeah, absolutely there's certain people that have access and certain people that don't. Yeah. So there's a there's a challenge there in the sense that, you know, like uh, science museums, 
um, and I know this is a challenge that Discovery Space faces here, is like it's relatively easy to get folks that are in state college in, right? It's much more difficult to get people outside of state college in, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but what that does produce is is an, an inequity in the sense that, you know, that means kids in state college are more likely to have these kinds of experiences with science that make them feel like, oh, I could be a scientist or right. science is not a thing I'm bad at. Um, so, but that that's that happens, of course, in all sorts of different ways in all sorts of different communities. I mean, the Exploratorium or, you know, the Museum of Science and Industry, like I'm, I'm guessing not only do you have a transportation challenge with those places, but you also have an expense challenge with those places yeah. where they're, they're expensive to go into and they're, because they're beautiful and they have all sorts of cool stuff in them. Um, and, and that costs money. So, so this issue of, well, are, are you, you know, making the rich richer through informal science learning environments? And how do we counteract that? How do we provide these kinds of experiences in ways that more students get access to it rather than it only being for the, the ones that, that have the resources and the privilege to already access it? Well, I mean, I think some of that comes from, from funding. Like how does, how does the, the state college science center get it's funding. Cause like, I know that the national science foundation, you know, offers a lot of money and a lot of grants for this type of stuff. Now, sure. I don't know whether it's just a, you know, a developmental grant, a grant or grant a del developmental money. I mean, a lot of these aren't free. Like the Lancaster science factory isn't free. You can't just walk in, right. you know, when I would, um, I would always take the kids on these dad ventures in the summer. Like I, I, you know, would work in the summer, but kind of, you know, here and there and be like, Hey, let's go to the science factory. Let's go to the Whitaker center. Let's go to all the things that are in central Pennsylvania. But, you know, I'm a person of, you know, I have time and I have the financial ability sure. to do that. Yep. Um, and not everybody does. So even though like, I'm sure Lancaster Science Factory gets some sort of financial support, it's not free, you know? No. It's, it, no, and, I, yeah. And I mean, certainly knowing from the discovery space, I mean, the other thing from their side, now I don't, I, this is probably true as it is in so many ways of other institutions, but, you know, like the big ones, you know, if you're at the Smithsonian, you probably get a lot of money from a lot of different places, right? right? Um, if you're the discovery space, not so much. Like they, they, I mean, NSF doesn't really give grants to museums to do museum work per se, right? Because they're a research organization. So you can have a research project and that may pay for some stuff in your, in your museum. And I'm sure that definitely happens. But, um, you know, I think most of these places rely on people paying to, to enter and then donations or, um, or, you know, foundation sort of things, local or otherwise, that, that give them money. But, um, you know, I think that these things are also typically underfunded other than the big fancy ones. Right. So, um, so I think it is hard for them to, to, um, to do this work. Right. I mean, that's certainly a challenge here in state college for the, for the discovery space. I mean, it, it is, um, it's not well supported, right. Um, in all sorts of ways. And, and some of that has to do with, you know, like how, how these, if these organizations are asking for money, they're competing with other places that are right. asking for money. And, uh, you know, in state college, that means the university and the athletics and all the other things related to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we probably, I, I don't know this, but I suspect that a lot of informal science learning environments disappeared over the last two and a half years. Oh yeah. 
So, um, and that's bad news, right? I mean, that's bad news for everyone, but it's, um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, this is, this is, is a fundamental equity issue. Like where do these things, like you don't, you're not going to find a, um, a, sci- a science center in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, you know, I mean, it's just not going to be there um, because it's, it's way up in central Pennsylvania and there's not a huge population there and there's no, there's, you know, so, so these things, you know, resources get concentrated both where people are and specifically where wealthy people are. And so, so that, that causes problems, I think, for, for how we think about, who needs access through informal learning environments and how do we think about that? But yeah, we got, we've gone down a different road. Right. This, so well, as, we, well per, we started talking about the, the equity aspect, which I think yeah. is a, is one of those things that you and I are, you know, even though we're, you know, two old white guys, um, yeah. I think we're both really mindful and conscious of the fact that, you know, equity plays a huge role in a lot of the work that we do. Yeah. Um, not just in education, broadly but science education specifically and and that's whether that's happening in formal settings like classrooms because of you know underfunded you know classroom environments or you know there's an attention to other content areas over science right or you know or informal informal learning environments too i mean those are things that you know absolutely are gonna i mean they're not gonna build a you know a science center in some place uh you know where they're not going to be able to, you know, be supported. Right. 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 And, right? Yeah. And I, and, and I think, you know, um, the, the ecosystem of informal science and how it gets supported, I think is, is something that um, we, we don't think about very much. Right. But I think is incredibly important. Right. I mean, if we take that step back and say like, well, yeah, okay. So everybody gets quote unquote science in school and that's really useful in many respects. But if what that that has to do with largely what happens in schools has to do with learning science in a formal sense, right? Whether that's a body of knowledge right. or a set of practices or however you want to characterize it, we would characterize it differently than it currently is in schools for the most part. But the purpose, the function of informal science is very different, but also very important. And so how do we, you know, because because the truth is most of the formal science learning environments do, classrooms that is, do a fairly inequitable job of engaging <laughs> kids in right. in science, right? We, we have a very, um, you know, white male sort of oriented way of thinking about science and that gets communicated through through our educational system and therefore how do we think about the the ecosystem outside of i mean not that we shouldn't be changing schools i'm not advocating that we should leave schools the way they are clearly but i do think thinking about how do we really as a society take seriously the idea that if schools are going to be slow to change, how do we think about informal learning environments taking up some of the slack of at least getting kids engaged and caring about some of these things and and thinking thinking better about their own identities as as science learners and as potentially future scientists or engineers? Yeah, I, I just want to clarify something I said when I, I said we're going to build these places and places are going to be supported. I don't mean that there's not a willingness from yeah. the communities to support these. I, I I don't want that to, you know, be misinterpreted. I mean, because I think that 
lots of communities w- would want this in there, but yeah. you know, whether there's the financial ability to support it, you know, not a willingness yeah. like, or an interest, you know, sure. it's just, you know, I, I mean, I don't like you used uh, you know, a, a really rural location in Pennsylvania where, you know, not a whole lot of people are living, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, how is, you know, even if there are folks who are interested in putting a science center there, it's not financially viable. Right. Yeah. And it's right. just, and yeah. Well, and you don't have enough population. I mean, it's, right. it's, 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 there's not enough, there's not enough financial resources and it is, you know, on, on that level, it is a, a zero sum game. Like if you have resources in the community and you're going to use them for something, probably not the first thing on your list is, is science museum, right? Like you're, you're going to have other things that you're going to prioritize. Um, but that said, like going back to this, this diversity of what informal science looks like, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, well, not maybe there, there are folks who have engaged in, um, research in informal science where what they're doing is essentially going to libraries, seeing libraries as a resource, because there are a lot of libraries in this country. I mean, it is an amazing thing about this country. I, I think we probably lost some of those during the pandemic too, but, um, but the idea that there is a public space that people can come to and get information and resources and bring them home for free. Right. And that that's supported in a meaningful way. Like uh, there are, there are researchers in science ed who have tried to partner with libraries and, and say, okay, we're going to run programs in the libraries for this kind of thing. So there are ways to get around, not get around, but, but grapple with the challenges of, of the, you know, the lack of resources in, in communities, but it still requires resources. Those resources have to come from somewhere. It's just that in this case, they're coming from outside the community in a way that, that moves and flows into the community in a way, in a way that's supposed to support the things that you want to see happening there. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think, um, it's it's a fascinating space, but it suffers from all all the same challenges that everything else in our society. You know, I mean, there are different amounts of resources that a place like Millersville can draw versus a place right. like Penn State can draw versus a place like Stanford or Harvard can draw, and that that's that's the way our society is set up, and it produces you know significant inequities in all sorts of ways, and. Um, and informal science is not immune to that. But I think there might be some opportunities on the on the horizon. You know, one of the conversations you and I had, in, I don't know, a couple episodes ago was uh, about the future being online. Yeah. And if if the future of education is online and we had that debate over two episodes, um, I think that that requires for for us to be science educators right if we mm-hmm. if we're going to you know value science education in this country and that in itself is an, is an own debate um not from you and I but from others yeah. right uh but if we're going to value science education in this country uh and there's this push to move things online then i see there being the need and an opportunity for these informal science spaces to happen right mm-hmm. because if they're 
Because you know what, you and I know what online learning looks like, and yeah. it's not the type of experiences that the kids are getting in a, in a physical classroom where they're engaging hands on with equipment. Now, there's ways to do it: send mm-hmm. equipment home, you know, right. develop types of activities that students can do with you know, typical home or like you know things that they could find in their home. Mm-hmm. Um, but that re- requires some creativity, and it's not going to happen with a hundred percent of our online curriculum. It's just not. Right. right. And so yeah. what that means is that there might be an opportunity for informal learning to happen more. Yeah. Right. So that maybe some online schools say, you know what, we're going to take the kids to this space or this place to, to engage with scientific concepts. That'd be awesome. I mean, yeah. is that going to happen? I don't know, but no. that, but I think that that'd be a really good, good selling point. You know, yeah. if um, for online programs or for informal learning spaces, you know, for the be, you know, hey, you, they can come here and engage with engineering. They can come here and engage with this. And right. or do some of these online programs develop those things like in the mm-hmm. in their own, you right. know. Yeah, yeah, in their own physical spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is something that um that is a strength of informal science learning environments generally, especially the more formalized informal ones that have physical spaces and do stuff, um, is they are opportunities for community, right? Like you get people, you know, like obviously most science museums tend towards younger kids, um, but not always, right? I mean, well, I guess that's not even fair. The, the sort of discovery space style tends to, to be focusing more on kids, but science museums like the Museum of Natural History in, in New York City, like that's not designed for kids. That's designed for everybody. Um, and places like makerspaces, like both of those are, there are spaces that are designed for for people to come in and and ultimately to be in community together, to be like, oh yeah. And I think that that is one of the strengths of the makerspace um, that it, it is a... I think in its idealized form, it is a place where, you know, we go in and it's like, oh, you know, Ollie's over there working on the drill press. I wonder if he can show me how to do something that I was trying to figure out. And then, oh, there's somebody over there who's doing a thing with the laser cutter. And I really want to check that out. And, And so you start to get talking to people. So in addition to the the practice of science or engineering or whatever is going on in that space. There's also the practice of, of communicating with other people and getting connected and and forming community. And I think, you know, that's important for reasons that have nothing to do with science education. Yeah. The, you know, another thing that came across was uh, a, uh, something out of the national Academy's press, um, which talked about specifically around evaluation and Mm. how do we evaluate and how do we assess and they they talk about it. Okay, there's you know three levels of assessment that happens at you know the the individual level, right? Like mm-hmm. the individual learning. Then the the program level, like overall program of you know um, an informal learning space. But then they also talk about the community mm. as a community. Like what's the impact on the community, which you know ties directly to that, you know. Yeah. And that's really because in in our classroom settings, right? We're focused maybe on individual, maybe on, you know, program, maybe I mean, yeah. we're, you know, I mean, we absolutely are in, interested in individual, but how we do that is, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Right. Right. You know? right, right. Cause you and I would want to do it one way. And we have these, you know, this was last episode, right? Like the, right. the, the, 
Tim's and the, you know, yep. PISA and all yep. that, you know, and, or the state standard, you know, these state assessments, these that go, you know, yeah, go into the big mishmash of state assessments and national assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to that there's a specific focus on the community, you know, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. And I think it, it, points out that, you know, in in formal science education environments, we pay a lot of lip lip service to community, you know, like, oh, we uh, even in my methods courses, we do things like community mapping. We talk about interfacing with with um, families and how do you do that? And but the vast majority of the time, formal learning environments, science or otherwise, do not interface much with either the community or the parents. Right. I mean, it happens because it's necessary, but it's not like that's a natural um, and organic connection. And certainly informal learning environments, they're intergenerational. They're they're you know, they they do a lot of that interesting community work and uh, in ways that I think traditional science learning environments obviously don't. So. I think I think that's about about that it for the moment but i think we can come back yeah we can revisit and you know what maybe we you know if if um michelle's michelle right you said michelle michelle's interested she could come on and you know it'd be awesome to hear from her you know um you know to the perspective and and you know it's cool that you're serving on and on that board that's awesome does she have to refer to you as sir you know because yeah or doctor or elevated status you know or or (laughs) Madam Duchess or whatever, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, whatever she feels. Yeah. I, I think of, uh, you know, a, it's a wonderful life. And, you know, the, the guy who's on the board, rah, rah, that's you, you know, <laughs> great. I didn't get a rump out of that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're that guy. I'm that guy. Uh, yeah. yeah. How about Joyce? Yeah. You have a joy. Yeah. Cause I got, I got a good one. Okay. I then a... I think you should go first. You can, you're coming in hot. So you should I am, go. I am reading a book that I love, you know, mm. I, I'm, I read a lot of, you know, just, I don't want to say crappy literature but i read <laughs> i i read stuff that you know it's like this you know it's like the action you know stuff that you know yeah no, one, no action movie is gonna win a you know an academy award no none of these action books are you know gonna, gonna win gonna, the pulitzer no they're, it's not great writing you know it's just it's entertain me entertaining but it's not yeah. like but i'm reading a book called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um hmm. and uh i'll have to pull up the author um so let me give you the um the premise the premise Please. is it's written by gabriel zevin okay and uh it follows three two you know two main characters and then there's a third one so it's sadie sam and marks and and they're gamers mm-hmm so they're uh, grow up in like uh, like the eighties, and they play the games, you know, that we would have played in the 80s. the games, the games. the games, yeah. But then they go off and become programmers together, game designers together, and um, it talks about their life and collaboration together. It's not. I'm about halfway through, and I just, I, I just can't put it down. It's just such good writing, and um. And it's told non-linearly. So you jump at the beginning and then you jump in later in life and you come back. I mean, it's it's not hard to follow because, you know, I mean, there's really only three characters that you have to follow. And there's a couple other people that come in and out. Um, 
but and you know they talk about like starting to develop a game and then they interview them later and and it's like the 30th anniversary of the game so you know the game becomes a thing right and so it is really really good because it's the writing is so beautiful there's so many passages you just want to like you know like hold on your tongue and let like you know dissolve you know it's Mm. like such good writing um and this and the story is pretty compelling because you don't know where it's going. These are they're it's not a love story. The folks are not like romantically connected. Um, but it is a, a female character, a male character, and another male character who, you know, is are are all working together as collaborators. It is so good. It is so good. All right. Well, look at that. So you so you have given now now I, I was headed this way anyway, but I think now I really feel like I've got to do like a a sort of uh, brainless, stupid recommendation because <laughs> last time you set this bar that like I I always do that and you so uh, I don't know if it's brainless and stupid, but it's certainly not uh, it's not like quality literature. So so my um, my joy is a show that my wife and I have been watching together called Terminal List. You've probably seen it advertised because it's sort of everywhere right now. Yeah, um, Chris Pratt and um, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, but it, and it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a classic sort of story. Like basically it's, it's, you know, elite, it's some, it's always elite soldiers, seals or some version of that. So, um, so it's about this guy who is a leader of a seal team and they all, that they're beginning of the show. Like there's this big disaster and he comes back, um, and, it's about him uncovering sort of the the plot slash backstory to um, to this disaster that happens, and him trying to sort of basically single handedly with a couple of friends make it all right. So it's sort of a revenge thriller military thing. Um, it's I, you know it's you know again like we say in about many of our recommendations is not exactly happy, but it's gritty and it's. Um, it's apparently he had a lot of people on the team, both some of the actors, but also people helping with like the, the story and the stunts and everything who were actual, um, you know, seals. And, and so I think there's an intent to try and make it as realistic as possible, given the genre is basically he's a Superman and, and he can do everything. Um, but it's, it's well done. It's uh, we've enjoyed it. And, um, and it's uh, you know, entertaining so i would recommend it if you've got uh, a little extra time um after watching the bear yeah gotta watch the bear first it's funny you know how you know chris pratt's arc right because if you see him on parks and rec like he's like you know like kind of a stoner yeah and i heard an interview with him about like his first season on parks and rec and he'd like decided at some point pretty early on that he was just going to get fat like literally he's like i'm that's my goal for this year is i'm just gonna lay around and eat a bunch and become like a because he felt like that was in the character of this dude that Uh, he was playing sure so and clearly you know as you say then guardians of the galaxy and now he's like a you know mega star right 
He's one of the Chris's, right? He's, he's like one of the, he's Chris. one of the Chris's, right? He's not the Hemsworth, but he's a Chris. Well, and there's also Chris Pine. Don't forget, oh, Chris, Chris, Chris Pine, Pine, of Chris, yeah. you know, Chris Pratt, Chris Hemsworth, Chris yeah. Evans, Chris Evans. You got there's all the Chris's, Chris's, a lot of Chris's, a bunch yeah, of them Chris's. show up in Marvel, and yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, check it out. Terminal List. I think it's eight. 10 episodes, eight or 10 episodes. They're about an hour each. So it's a, it's a bit of a commitment again. When, when I was in yeah. Stockholm, there was like so many posters for there for that. Yeah. Like everywhere you went, you saw yeah. it. Like it was a poster, 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 poster. Like you go down an escalator. It was like the yeah. whole side of the terminal pe- list. Everywhere. Yeah, it's like everywhere. It's like, yeah. wow, they're really, you know, they're going yeah. all in. You have to yeah. check that out. That sounds great. Yeah. sounds in my wheelhouse. All right. Well, Hey, this is great. Informal learning spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Catch yeah. you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.